Hi, I'm Lily, and this is the Culture Bites Back podcast. Episode 3, Intertwined. Today, I'll be chatting with guest Michael Lutz about Twine and its relationship to his work in games, creative writing, and academia. So, Michael, why don't you start us off with an introduction about yourself? Well, uh, I am Michael Lutz. I am a graduate student uh, in the English department at Indiana University Bloomington, and I specialize in early modern drama, uh, Shakespeare and his cohort, uh, and media theory and sort of theories of humanism and post-humanism. And I am also a uh, sort of moonlighting uh, interactive fiction and game designer and sometimes critical games writer. Do you mind elaborating a little bit more on your academic research for us? Yeah, sure. So I guess um, from sort of a a more generalist or uh, less inside the ivory tower kind of language, (laughs) uh, I do Shakespeare and philosophy sort of broadly understood and um, kind of what is the meaning of the human as it becomes sort of understood in the Renaissance, which is a period of immense global change, um, what with interactions in the New World, um, the rise of Protestantism, um, various Protestant sects, so on and so forth. There there are many, many competing claims about uh, what constitutes like kind of a true or genuine human life. And I sort of read through the lens of early modern education, um, the stage drama of Shakespeare and his cohort, looking for the ways in which they were sort of responding to what they had been taught, which was that, you know, to be the proper humane human, um, you need to have read all of this Cicero, all of this Virgil, um, and internalized all these moral lessons. And in fact, St. Augustine says that uh, demons and devils love the theater, in the same way that people love the theater, because the theater is filled with all of this like multimodal sensuality that the hardcore Protestants are harping on and saying is, in fact, why the theater is uh, pure idolatry, essentially. How exactly did the sensuality feed into an anxiety about idolatry? Because you're seeing uh, a person on stage pretending to be someone that they are not. Like, nothing that happens is real, and at the same time, it's all very compelling. This is something that the polemicists, the Protestant polemicists, are very concerned about. Like, it simultaneously teaches you that, like, dying is just hilarious, like, murder is fun, but also all of these immoral things have no real consequence Mm -hmm. because it's all fake. And at the same time, because you're thinking that none of these things have any sort of consequence, um, obviously they think that the uh, people in the audience are just going to go out and start indiscriminately, like, uh, sleeping around and murdering each other. Basically, actually, it's it's a thing that we've seen repeated um, again and again and again with, you know, comic books in the 50s, rock and roll music, and uh, most recently video games, right? There's a kind of immediate experience in the theater, um, a sense of these things happening in front of you, but being not real insofar as there's not that sort of moralistic payload that makes the, not even really establishment, but this particular sector of society very, very anxious about uh, what this new, new media technology is going to do to people. What are people going to do with it? This all sounds incredibly fascinating and timely, as you noted earlier. However, and I'm basing this off of personal experience here, I'm sure it can be super exhausting combing through all of this history and and narrative and 
everything. So what do you like to read for fun on the rare occasions you do take a break from dissertating? This is a very difficult question because, <laughs> as I'm sure you know, uh, you don't do a lot of reading outside of these things when you are dissertating. Very true. Um, however, I would say, um, I mean, I just read all sorts of stuff. I, I kind of go from one end of the spectrum to the other. I think the last thing I read was, you know, A Chronicle of a Death Foretold by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, just for instance. But I think before that I was reading collections of short horror fiction, right? I read very pulpy things, very old things and newer things. I'm also working my way through um, a collection of uh, uh, short manga stories, um, Dream Fossil, which is the collected fiction of Satoshi Kon, who was a director, actually, of anime films who passed away a few years ago. He did, like, Perfect Blue and uh, Paprika and things like that. Well, I'm, I'm actually curious. You said pulpy. So what kinds of, I guess, horror collections are you looking at? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, for better or worse, right, I come to a lot of horror fiction from H.P. Lovecraft, who is, you know, a bit controversial because he's just a huge flipping racist. <laughs> um and there's a lot of stuff, uh, like there's a lot of critiques being leveraged currently. I'm thinking um, like Jeff Vandermeer, for instance, uh, wrote, I think, um, like this kind of editorial somewhere about, you know, why do we pay so much obeisance to this um, very hateful dead white man, um, which is, I think, a totally uh, good sort of tactic to take. But also, like, I can't help the fact that I discovered this guy's writing when I was 13. And, um, you know, I... Like the question I'm often asking myself is why is it that uh, Lovecraft and his circle, his style of writing, which so often um, can seem to really recapitulate a lot of these really uh, abhorrent tendencies of like early 20th century racism, you know, what does it mean that that speaks to me in such a level? And how do I kind of like reproduce the feelings that I got from his fiction without reproducing all of the really gross parts, which is kind of like the um, sort of strategy I have when I'm writing horror stories, right, is like, how can I make this feel like uh, Lovecraft made me feel when I was a kid, but without it actually being allegorical for how much Lovecraft really hated all of the uh, ethnic neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Uh, so I end up reading a lot of just really old, pulpy horror fiction from Lovecraft and his circle, um, Frank Belknap Long, all of the people basically who are amazingly worse than Lovecraft, not in terms of race stuff, but just in terms of like what the actual quality of their fiction is. <laughs> you bring up a really great point, and that's the idea that we can't really separate the artists from the piece of art we're looking at. And so a lot of controversy over whether the moral valence uh, or uh, moral beliefs of a person uh, should affect how we receive their art. And I'm also thinking of Orson Scott Card mm -hmm. um, and Ender's Game, which was a phenomenal book for me when I was a child. And I still really love the, the series. But now I can't help thinking of his personal beliefs and, and how that kind of shapes my approach to the text. Mm-hmm. And similarly, right, uh, Lovecraft's xenophobia. And, and the further back we go, the more issues we, we see right, with all of these canonical figures. And personally, I think that you can both appreciate the impact a work has had on a genre or a society or a culture and, and still be critical of, of the way it was produced or who produced it. Mm -hmm. Now I want us to move to a more modern medium. Uh, what are your favorite video games or game types? 
my game habits have shifted very, very much in maybe the past three years. Um, I would say probably the last big game I played, and when I say big, I mean, you know, like one of those AAA tentpole releases, <laughs> was probably Bioshock Infinite, to be honest. I, that feels like so important to me because I remember just like the crushing disappointment of that game of just like... <laughs> Such a beautiful world, so much money obviously spent in the design, um, and such like a really compelling and intriguing story, um, kind of in the most abstract sense, and then in practice just like this huge mess um, that I didn't have uh, any fun at all with. So at that point, I had already started playing um, sort of like small browser games, like weird little indie games, um, and I think I had discovered Twine. I think by that point... um, I had played, you know, like Porpentine's Howling Dogs and things like that. But the types of games that I really like to play now, um, I mean, I always am looking for a story, right? I mm-hmm. I need something that I can sort of like latch onto in terms of, of narrative. I'm not really a big systems person, unless the systems is something like The Sims or like Harvest Moon, which there is a Stardew Valley is a game that I am very, very interested in right now. Have you heard of this? Uh, well, I've been told I should play Harvest okay. Moon because I'm very much a micromanager. <laughs> I, I do play Sims occasionally when I get into one of those moods. Um, Animal Crossing was a yes. huge obsession for a little while. <laughs> yeah, so the game has to be either like very, very narrative heavy or it has to be basically no narrative of all, where it's just like, okay, you're some people in a house, and now you're going to like try to live your life the best you can without setting all of your wicker furniture on fire or something like that. <laughs> That's sort of, I think, where, where my game interests lie. One thing, I, I gave um, another talk a couple months ago at uh, Think Play, which is like a sort of work group at the University of Oregon. They sort of asked me to just come in and talk with them about games, and they asked me, what my favorite types of horror things are. And mm-hmm. I talked about that. And then um, Dante Douglas, I think, who was the guy who asked me, he was like, so you talked about all that, but you didn't mention any horror games. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is something that I will probably talk about uh, now, just because, like, yeah, actually. So despite the fact that I think the majority of my games kind of edge into horror territory, I don't really play a lot of horror games. Kind of surprisingly, I'm really into just... You know, games that are either going to tell me a story or let me, like, piddle around uselessly in a world with a lot of stuff that I can poke at. That's kind of, I think, what is valuable to me in a game is either a sense of someone telling me something, right? Someone saying, like, here is a story of these people, these characters in this world, or a sense of, like, here is this world, um, there are some characters who inhabit it, and you can just kind of, like, figure out what you're going to do with that on your own. Do you not see horror games typically fitting into that? Very often, no. And, you know, to be completely frank, I feel like very often horror games are very, very bad. In what (laughs) Um, way? I'm I'm speaking, you know, this is a very big blanket statement, and it doesn't cover, (laughs) I think, a lot of um, smaller indie games that tend to do very odd and creative things with horror. Um, But when I think of what um, tries to pass for horror games um, more largely... It tends to be very much uh, like action horror games. And so um, even though this is like a bit of a dated reference, something like the Dead Space series, which is a third-person shooter that has a lot of sort of horror-like paint on it, um, but I don't find to be particularly frightening or compelling in any sort of way because at the end of the day, it's more about the action of plowing through this spaceship filled with monsters or something like that. Or God help us, right? There's like a thousand zombie games. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> 
Um, I, so, so then are you using horror as a way to unsettle or, or uh, the, the player or some, something more atmospheric? Oh, absolutely. Um, for me, horror is kind of about the feeling of like inhabiting a space or like sharing a space with something that in some way is not, if not malevolent, then, um, you know, mildly hostile to you or something where you don't know what is going to happen to you. I want things that are kind of the opposite of, oh man, this monster just jumped out of a heating duct and then I had to take a buzzsaw to it and, you know, my adrenaline spiked for a second, but I'm really not uh, sort of dwelling or ruminating on uh, the horror of my situation. To me, horror is very much more of an atmospheric kind of thing. And my friend uh, Cameron Kunzelman did a series of blog posts where he played just a bunch of different horror games and then gave his kind of opinion on, on them. And one of the things that he came away with is he said that uh, in horror games, one of the basic sort of principles is keeping information uh, hidden from the player, right? The kind of operative principle of horror games is that uh, you are in a space or in a room, you're exploring an environment and there is something that you don't know and you know that you don't know it. That is what is scary to me. Like it's the fact that there might be a, a Jack in the box, not that moment when the like little clown thing finally pops out, right? It's about that building of tension, that ex escalation. Well, speaking of these uh, more abstract or I guess mechanical aspects, could you tie that into your own twine games and, and your philosophy when you're making them? So I would say, actually, something like uh, My Father's Long, Long Legs is a really good example of uh, this sort of, I don't know, way of thinking in action. Because what my idea was for uh, My Father's Long, Long Legs when I finally sort of sat down to make it is um, I was going to make the opposite of a, of a screamer. Do you know what screamers are? Are, are those just like jump fiction or like oh. jump scares? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, there's... They're jump scares, and they're a particular type of jump scare that circulates as sort of a meme on the internet. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, man, watch this uh, video of, like, some cute kittens playing. Oh, and no, I hate those. You're saying they're the ones where something randomly pops out at you. <laughs> right, right. So what? how those work, right, is that they sort of, like, lull you into a sense of security, right? They get you to let your guard down and then they throw something at you. And sort of mechanically or thematically, what I wanted to do with my father's long, long legs was the opposite of that, which is put you in a situation, put your guard up and never actually throw anything at you. Or when I did finally throw, decide to throw something at you, um, it was not going to be like a big flash up, scream, disappear. It was going to be something slowly appearing, something very sort of like uh, methodical, deliberate, just in every way that I could. I wanted to make the opposite of that and see if I could still make it scary. Well, now that you mention it, when I was reading it, I was half expecting that scream or jump scare to, to happen. Mm -hmm. But even when it didn't, even when I got to the end, I was still intrigued and disturbed enough that I wanted to read it over and over to see what new things I could find. <laughs> so in a way, that expectation, the, the very tropish of something's going to jump at me from the dark, did make the experience of reading uh, your interactive fiction a little more nerve wracking. But even mm -hmm. without it, uh, it was definitely still impactful. Um, does that mean Film-wise, maybe like It Follows is more your taste? Yeah, no, I um, definitely really enjoyed It Follows. It Follows was a, was a very intriguing horror film. 
And I would say uh, very much sort of aligns closely with kind of what I try to do in my fiction, which is the the idea of the sense of a nebulous threat, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a whole sort of like cottage industry of um, critical work being done on It Follows, sort of talking about what it actually is, which is on the one hand, good, because it's a film that's begging to kind of be thought about in those terms, and on the other hand, falls into this trap that I think a lot of thinking about genre materials falls into, uh, which is, like, it does, in fact, have to turn out to be something, rather than, you know, this monster in this film is just kind of a collapse, right? A kind of dreamy collapse of several different types of interla- interrelated anxieties about, like, family and intimacy and, like, peer groups and things like that. It Follows is really nice because it does defy its own sort of audience's desire to figure out, you know, what the hell is this thing? Where did it come from? What does it mean? And I get that, you know, honestly, kind of a lot with my my stuff. I know there were a lot of people who were really sort of irritated by my father's long, long legs because I never sort of buckled down and explained, like, why the father gets so tall. Um <laughs> And that's not really interesting to me, right? Like, it's not interesting to, for me to figure out, like, oh, he had, you know, midichlorians or something. <laughs> uh, you know, there is this thing happening. Dad's in the basement and he's getting taller and taller. And, like, I just have to deal with it somehow. <laughs> then when you look at rules, I suppose, for, for horror games or games in general, rules that define that universe uh, or the way things behave in that universe, uh, do you prefer a little more flexibility, a little more room to maneuver? I would say so. I I actually find myself in a difficult position here because it is possible if you're playing too fast and loose with sort of like supernatural events or something like that, you can like just completely uh, eliminate um, the ability of your reader or viewer or whatever to just give a damn. So I tend to try not to over-explain, but I try to make everything operate according to at least a feeling of dream logic. Um, oh, I love that, that description. Sense. Right, like that feeling of, you know, like you're having a dream and you're trying to bake pizzas, um, but you also have to take care of a bunch of puppies, and in no way do these things make any sort of sense as being positioned beside each other, but in the dream they're just kind of there, and they just insist on being there. And that's sort of like my approach to um, horror elements, is I try to come up with something that is not overly complex, but which um, feels very insistent in its thereness. I would say something like my my longer game, I guess longest game, um, The Uncle Who Works for Nintendo, operates on that kind of logic, less so than... Um, my Father's Long, Long Legs, which is about the slow like description of a situation. The Uncle Who Works for Nintendo is about the presence, the looming presence of this thing, this thing that people are calling the uncle. And eventually it shows up, but you know we don't really need to explain it, talk about where it comes from, but we can sort of maybe speculate. Um, it's much more interesting and frankly much more fun for me to um, basically set up little things for readers, viewers, players to formulate their own theories about things, to allow them to do the work. Do you see your aesthetic towards game design right now impacting the way you received Bioshock Infinite and and then your transition into more indie games? I mean, my aesthetic has always been a bit more, uh, I guess, minimalist than something like Bioshock Infinite, which I think is, you know, part of its draw is just kind of like this super abundance of stuff, right? It's such a busy, beautiful game in that way. And I guess, you know, if you wanted to draw some sort of connecting line, there is one there uh, insofar as 
I left Bioshock Infinite thinking like, well, this is a big, bu- busy, beautiful game, and it didn't make anything compelling out of it. Like, by the end, I was just like, oh, well, okay. Did you find the other games in this series more compelling? Or I suppose the first uh, one, because a lot of people don't like the second one. I really loved the first game. Um, I mean, it came out, I think I was... Yeah, it was my freshman year uh, in undergrad. Um, it came out, like, the first week of classes, like, during my freshman <laughs> orientation. And rather than going out and making friends, I, of course, like, you know, hung out in my dorm room and just played through the the original Bioshock. And I loved it. And also, I would probably say I'm kind of a Bioshock 2 apologist. There is a sense <laughs> in which it... There is a sense in which Bioshock 2 is just, like, immensely unnecessary as a story, but... As a story, nevertheless, it offers some really interesting critiques of the first game. Um, it kind of like approaches similar things um, from a different angle uh, and, I don't know, does some interesting work there, I think. I also feel like those games were a bit more um, pointed in what they were trying to do. There, there's something happening, I think, in Bioshock Infinite where they were very heady from their success in, in the first game. I say they, but, uh, you know, we would be tempted to say, like, Ken Levine. Um, <laughs> Just kind of like got too many ideas and didn't know how to really rein everything in. Um, the first game I ended up making in Twine, I made in probably a month after I played Bioshock Infinite. Um, it's called Tower of the Bloodboard. And it was very much, I think, kind of a response directly to how I'd felt playing Bioshock Infinite. Because it was this big, beautiful, colorful world that in the end was just kind of another first-person shooter. And Tower of the Bloodlord started out as uh, me trying to remake just the first 20 minutes of Call of Duty 2 in twine or call of duty modern warfare i should specify and this this next question i'm going to ask might be a little bit thorny (laughs) do you care uh whether your game is defined as a video game or as interactive fiction or uh, visual fiction however um people want to term it uh do you think there are any stakes in that uh, whether it's with indie games in general twine games or your game I do care, but I guess I don't care equally about every single game. And also kind of at the end of the day, I am going to call it whatever I'm going to call it. And (laughs) I don't kind of care what other people do. I feel like a lot of Twine stuff uh, got talked down to as like not real games. Um, First of all, in the interactive fiction community, right? It was was, um, called like not real interactive fiction because it's not working in a parser format where you're typing. Really? I didn't know that. Yes, when Twine sort of first hit the scene, um, there was a big backlash in the interactive fiction community because it wasn't parser, right? It was just clicking hyperlinks. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, for for them to actually be a game, to be real interactive fiction, it had to be something where you're going to type, like, get ye flask. So that that was something that happened in the interactive fiction community. And then Twine kind of started uh, breaking into, I want to say mainstream gaming, um, but that's even not quite right. But it got a kind of bigger audience. And then, of course, there was this whole question of, you know, are there visuals? Like, so many of these things are kind of personal stories, and there's not really any variation in the plot if you go through it, right? It's just like a bunch of choices that don't really add up to something. Mm -hmm. Twine is very interesting, because some of that some of that sort of like as as formal descriptors those things can be true right and on the other hand twine can be incredibly complex you can have something like tom mchenry's uh horse master which are you familiar with this i'm not okay so tom mchenry's horse master is uh there's a great chapter on it um in merrick copas's um anthology video games for humans which is a big anthology mm-hmm. that just does a bunch of critical essays on twine games 
But Horsemaster takes place in kind of this weird dystopian future where you are a, a horseman and you are going to get your horse and you are going to raise it as your own and enter it into like the big horse competition. Um, except you start out playing it and it becomes readily apparent that this thing that you are calling a horse is not a horse at all. It's in fact some sort of like weird alien crustacean that you're raising in your bathtub. And you have to choose how to take care of this thing as it gets larger and it gets, like, you know, various attributes. It, it becomes um, a very sort of, like, in-depth animal care sim, but is also, like, very uh, dark and disturbing because it's this horrible dystopian future where you're also addicted to drugs and you're, like, keeping yourself awake to take care of this horrible monster that you hope will win this competition and get this you fame. sounds amazing. <laughs> it is it is highly highly recommended i would say um so Horsemaster is a great example of um how twine can just get incredibly complex and weird it really becomes this issue of like you know what is a particular uh, creator interested in doing with this tool and i would say that like sometimes i'm more interested in making something that's gamier and sometimes I'm more interested in making something that's more, like, interactive fiction near. So, like, for instance, I did a short story that I would not really call a game. I would probably call it more interactive fiction called um, The Bones Picked Clean and the Clean Bones Gone, which is a ghost story. It is, apart from kind of the atmospherics of Twine, right, uh, changing lighting in different scenes and things like that, there is only one choice that you can make, and this choice leads to um, two different endings. But the thing about the endings is that the difference between them is like three words. And from my point of view, this is super interesting, right, because I'm uh, an English major and I'm an English grad student. So these three words make all the difference, mm -hmm. we know, because we're close readers. You know, you read the sentence and these three words are different and you're like, oh, this person's entire outlook on life has changed. Um, and yet uh, I had people who were um, playing this or reading through it and they would get to the end and they would be like, how do you get the second ending? I just got the first one again. Um, and I was like, look very closely at this sentence. And it's just like, what the hell? <laughs> but that's also uh, kind of one of the other academic, critical, artistic axes I try to grind is um, one of the reasons I kind of moved into Twine is because I played games for a long time since I was a little kid. But uh, Twine, in addition to kind of like ease of production, is text heavy and... I have always kind of approached, because of my training as, as an English academic, right, I always kind of approach texts as games, not as um, some sort of stable entity, but as something that I'm supposed to, like, poke around in and press on and see what I can link it up to and what sort of interpretations can I make. How do things like, you know, the, the presence or absence of three additional words, how does that impact the way that uh, we end up interpreting a sentence um, you know, that, because I'm the most boring person in the world, that can feel very gamey to me. Yeah, no, I think, uh, well, my teaching philosophy anyway, boils down to words mean things, so words do stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so the impulse for, for people, participants, audiences, to only accept readings or critical lenses on their games to a certain point, instead of considering that there are all of these layers and intersections and that this is part of what makes art uh, this profound, you know, subjective experience. Um, it, it is a little troubling to me that I have to work so hard to, to get some people to see this isn't just some kind of ivory tower, you know, overthinking, making everything a symbol issue, but that it is entirely relevant to how we perceive others, how we 
want ourselves to be perceived, right? And, and intention right. only matters up to a certain point. The way other people receive our words kind of fills in the rest of it. So we need to understand what words and images can do even without us behind them. Mm-hmm. All right. So I guess to wrap it up, I'm trying to think of like a question that's not like too overwhelming to ask you. Um, where do you see the trajectory or future of video games right now? And I know that's a huge question. Say all video games? (laughs) Um, Or maybe a specific aspect of it. Or what is your feeling about, even if your research maybe has shifted to your dissertation, but what is your general feeling towards video games at the moment and and how they're going? One thing that I'm noticing that I hope sort of keeps up is a trend of shorter games. Now, very often. Interesting. That's not. Yeah. Something I considered, yeah. So I see, like, I think very often, um, like, shorter games are produced as such because they're produced, you know, like, by independent studios and, um, you know, they just don't have the time for the whole, like, AAA experience. But I like shorter games because I am an adult with lots of stuff to do. (laughs) And I really like, and this is, you know, again, sort of belying my own um, allegiance to narrative games, but... You know, I want a game that's going to tell me a story, and I don't want it to be a story that is going to necessitate, like, 20 hours of shooting people with little bits of plot progression in between or something like that. And so I'm thinking, you know, Gone Home um, from mm-hmm. a couple years ago was something that I, you know, like, sat down and played through in an evening. Honestly, I think the the gamiest game, the game that was, like, a game that you pay for kind of game that I played through most recently was Undertale. And that was, you know, not as short as Gone Home, but also, like, not as long as a lot of the sort of old-school, like, NES uh, RPGs that it was kind of aping. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot uh, in terms of, like, games and what would games have to do to become more viable in sort of, like, a cultural mainstream or something like that, it would have to be, like, something about issues of length. Because you can you can sit down and you can watch a movie, or you can read a book in a day or over mm-hmm. the course of a week. But games are so much more complex that just, you know, expecting people to be able to sit down and, like, play through 20 hours of a shooter or, like, 80 hours of some sort of action RPG kind of thing, it's just overwhelming. It's incredible. Um, and it also, I think, works to the detriment of, you know, my, my personal favorite thing, the story <laughs> of being able to tell a coherent narrative that then you can like discuss with your friends later. So I really would like to see uh, the trend of shorter games catching on, not just at kind of the indie level, but maybe at, um, you know, kind of higher level seeing uh, sort of triple a games or, you know, more professionally produced games that are more interested in delivering a cohesive single experience rather than something that is, uh, stretched out i don't have maybe much faith in this happening because you know there's a lot of market forces uh that dictate that um professionally produced games Mm -hmm. are just going to happen otherwise um but we are seeing a lot of we are seeing a lot of this in in the independent scene undertale i've already mentioned but also i think of something as absolutely bizarre as like you know five nights at freddy's um Uh, (laughs) i have a a a little uh high school girl that i um or a middle school girl that I tutor, and she loves Five Nights at Freddy's, and she loves Undertale. So it's funny yeah. that you say both of them, because the, the, <laughs> those are the two games she's been talking about for, like, the past year. Yeah. So, I mean, what is what is nice about um, these games is that they are sort of very 
honest about kind of the limits of their experience. Um, like Undertale, you have to play through it, I think, probably twice if you want to get, like, the super secret best ending, right? <laughs> but it's also, as I said, it's not... It, it looks and plays like an old-school um, JRPG, but it's not a million hours long. And Five Nights at Freddy's... I mean, it's, you know, here are five nights. Um, play through them. It's not going to be this huge time sink, despite the fact that these games... Um, are very, very short compared to, uh, like, AAA games. They're immensely popular. Like I said, that's just kind of... I Like, that's what I want from games at this point in my life, is a game that I can sit down and I can play in an evening. Um, I don't have to spend the entire time, like, leveling up to a particular point where I can get to the thing that I actually want to see. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can't believe we're concluding on this note, because now I'm just reminded <laughs> of my age. I mean, I hadn't even thought about this aspect, but now that you mention it, it, it's very seductive, right? The idea that I can now play a game that I don't have to feel guilty about because I know I can stop or or complete a good portion of it just within a few hours. Um, but, but it is apparently an entirely relevant concern that I should be thinking more and more about. Yeah. You know, this is coming from a from a guy who, when he was playing Final Fantasy VIII, I think, like, put over 100 hours into Final Fantasy. Mm-hmm. Like, I would just play the hell out of Final Fantasy games. Um, so I did, I basically, I feel like I've done enough of a time sink <laughs> into games to, like, last for the rest of my life. Now I just want something that I can easily uh, sort of get through and think about and digest. Yeah, I completely agree. It's uh, <laughs> part of why I feel frustrated when I play something like League of Legends or, um, (laughs) right, like sometimes it goes really well and you end on a high, but very frequently you just wonder where, you know, the 30 to 40 minutes of your life went and you feel like you got nothing out of it. And and then there's that kind of depression spiral where you're wondering, I'll never be as good as these like 18 year olds (laughs) who are also playing. And then I have to have someone tell me, well, they, they don't work Lily and they don't do research. And then I'm like, but why can't I be 18 again? Um, so, so <laughs> why yeah. Can't I, why can't I be the best at least? Exactly. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that's a, a very insightful observation to make about uh, shorter games being relevant, not just in terms of tighter narratives, but, but just in terms of the, the consumer, right? The different levels um, of audience that are, are participating in these types of play. Mm-hmm. Um, well. Agree. Well, thank you, Michael, for agreeing to do this interview, and good luck with your research. Thank you. Thank you for having me.